0: Your attention to our passage. And I mentioned this before worship, that we are going to be starting a new series this morning from Deuteronomy. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, the text I'm going to be preaching from is in the bulletin. So we're going to be starting in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 5. Let me say this on the front end so that you're not preoccupied about it. Um, Even as I heard more hacking and sniffling and nose-blowing uh, during the, the quiet times, um, I'm participating in that a little bit. I will not have my hands on the communion bread this morning. I just want to let you know that. Because if I was sitting there, I'd be wondering, is the man with the germs going to be holding the bread I eat? Because <clears throat> I don't want him to be. I will not. Healthy Jake will be, will be handling that. I call him Healthy Jake. And I don't have a good place to park my water, so forgive me for bobbing up and down... Um, a little bit. But Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 5, um, I, like to, uh, I like to get us back in the Old Testament from time to time. I don't want us to go long, long stretches and not have some interaction with the Old Testament. And uh, this is kind of selfish to do this book because I just, I just love the first five books of the Bible. I love the books of Moses. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. That's the fifth one. And it's it's a big book. It's 30-something chapters. We're we're only going to have about two months, maybe, and some change to to, uh, be in Deuteronomy. So this is really just hitting some highlights, but I wanted to do it anyway. Uh, It's the Old Testament where often we feel a little bit out of our territory. It feels much less familiar than parts of the New Testament. If If you've had any biblical background, we don't assume that. But uh, something to know as we go to Deuteronomy, this is one of the four most commonly cited books in the New Testament, is Deuteronomy. One of the four most commonly cited books. And a couple of examples from the life of Jesus. At the beginning of His public ministry, He's been baptized by John the Baptist, and the Lord sends Him out into the wilderness for 40 days to fast and, and be tempted. When Satan comes to Jesus and tempts Him, And Jesus' response to it, rather than just unilaterally as the Messiah, dispelling Satan, what does He do? He cites Scripture. Now, He may have done it times that aren't recorded, but we've got at least three times where He did it. Each of those three times, He cites Deuteronomy. In fact, kind of a a narrow slice of Deuteronomy. When Jesus, and I was talking about this with the children uh, when we sang before Sunday school, when Jesus was asked really kind of a trick question. What's the greatest commandment in the Bible? 613 commandments, I think, in the Old Testament. He, he cited Deuteronomy. It really has a formative place just in the Bible as a whole. But I, before we read the passage, I want to bring it in even a little bit more personal. Going all the way back to the early church, and when I say the early church, I don't mean like the 1800s. I mean way like, you know, the creeds, way back into the you know, early hundreds, Christians, when they looked at the book of Deuteronomy, if I can put it this way, they saw their own story. They looked at it and sort of got up over it and said, think about where these people are in their lives. Okay, They've come out of their slavery in Egypt, and that's really the book of Exodus, but lots of references back to it for the rest of the Old Testament. They've come out of slavery but they're not yet in the promised land. okay? So they're in between their old slavery and their inheritance, the promised land. And they're living in the wilderness and their life is hard and God is coming to them before they cross over saying, look, here's what you need to know, not just then, but right now. If you forget who I am, here's how it's going to go. If you remember who I am, here's how it will go. If you forget who you are, here's how it's going to go. If you remember who you are, here's how it will go. Christians for almost two millennia have looked at that book and said, man, that's that's our lives. He released us from our slavery to sin. We're not yet in the promised land. We've got to be reminded who God is and who we are. And it's funny, I'd already planned on saying that before I read the passage. And I uh, I was with one of our church members uh, Friday. And and out of the blue, not knowing I was going to say that, he said, you know, when I read about the life of Israel as a whole, I feel like I'm reading about my own experience as a believer. And I said, that's my sermon on Sunday. That's exactly what I was going to say. But I, it just rang true that that's something Christians have seen for a long time. As we read this passage, here's what I want us to do. And, and I'm going to pray that God enable us to do this, is that as we read over and over in this book of Deuteronomy about God's people, when they knew better, being stubborn, being stiff-necked, being rebellious, then rather than look at them as cartoon characters, that as people who live, if you're a believer, in between our old slavery and the promised land, that we will identify with them uh, intensely. Deuteronomy 1... Beginning in verse 5. Beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law, saying, The Lord our God said to us in Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in the Arabah, in the, in the hill country and in the lowland and in the Negev and by the seacoast, the land of the Canaanites, and Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. Skipping down to verse 26. Yet you would not go up but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hated us, He has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites, to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, The people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. Then I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will Himself fight for you, just as He did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you, as a man carries his son, all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet, in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents in fire by night and in the cloud by day to show you by what way you should go. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, in some ways, this is very removed from us in that it's describing a different ethnic group of people, it's on another continent, it's over three millennia ago, their lives are very different looking than ours and yet it rings very true uh, to have been given everything from you, to have even visibly, visually to have seen your hand at work and still not believe and still rebel. So, Lord, we, we would ask that even this morning, if, if we're very, very aware that we are stubborn and that we kind of want you but we kind of don't, we ask that you would show us great mercy by using your word to show us yourself and ourselves. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, just, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I saw an interview online and it was the girlfriend of a young man who had served as an army ranger. And if you know anything about the rangers, it's, it's you know if you're in the army it's a big deal to go through ranger school and get a ranger tab and um, they, they don't just do normal stuff, they tend to, to kind of do tip of the spear stuff in the military. And so <clears throat> her boyfriend had been deployed eight times to the Middle East. Now, he was young enough to, I think, not even um, be in his mid-30s, had been deployed eight times and was about to be sent out on his ninth deployment, and he committed suicide. And he, what he communicated to his girlfriend, uh, I don't think she knew he was going to take his life, but as he, as he just was despondent and knew he was going back, what he kept talking about, out of all this is incredible, out of all the things he could have talked about, he kept talking about the fact that God could never forgive me for the things I've done. Now, I'm not sharing that is any kind of a take on the, the Middle East. But I'm saying just at a deep, deeply felt heart level, whatever he had ever heard about God, he must have heard something because... That was in the forefront of his mind, was what about me and God? But what he could not believe is that after I've had to do things that I've had to do, that God could love me. Yesterday, I was at a meeting, and um, during, the, during the lunch break of this meeting, I was sitting across from a man that uh, lives in the area, who's a minister, and um, I was just, just kind of catching up with him, and, and he was telling me about a Christian man that he has been spending time with. He said this is a Christian man who, in the spectrum of, of professing Christians, of you know, from loosey-goosey to really tight, he's way over on the tight side. Like, he would only sing, for instance, psalms. Not, he would not have sung the first two songs that we've sung so far, because they're not from Scripture. He'd, he'd sing the third. So pretty, you know, pretty tight. On things and very observant, the kind of guy that's like going to be extremely diligent about his Bible reading, his prayer, and what worship is supposed to be, and, and really major on the details. And he told this man that, that I was uh, having lunch with, he finally said to him, you know what, I like being with you. And the man I was having lunch with said, yeah. And I told him, you know why you like being with me? Because when you're with me, you actually feel like God might love you. You know, you are so strident. And you're walking so carefully on each stepping stone that deep down you really don't think that God loves you. And there's something about when we're together that you kind of, for a little bit, get a break and you feel that God actually loves you. That maybe He actually likes you. Um, When I start a new series, I don't like to give a lot of introductory stuff, like lots of detail about dates and, and all that. But since this is an introductory sermon... What I'm wanting you to do is just from the outset to bump into themes that we're going to see for the rest of our time in Deuteronomy. And really, they are all in these passages. I couldn't put the whole of chapter 1 on here, but just even these excerpts are enough to see. This is the experience of God's people. And here's what I hope we're going to see, is that God gives His people every proof and reason in the world to be convinced that He's with them, and He's real, and He loves them, and He likes them, and He's powerful, and He'll keep all His promises, and they'll rebel anyway. And He still loves them. And there is nothing that we need to hear more. As people who should very much identify with them. Now, let me say this. I'm not assuming that every person here would identify themselves as being part of... The people of God. We can't make ourselves the people of God. God makes His people. But when He makes a people, we should identify with the way His people have always been. Now, I want to circle back to that at the end. But let's look at this. So first off, what what were God's people given? Second, how did God's people respond? I've already told you. (laughs) And then what did God's people still have? What were God's people given... How did God's people respond? What did God's people still have? All right, I'm going to say on the front end, what God's people were given, I'm going to call it promises with proof. Promises with great proof. What do we mean by that? Some of this, I'm drawing from a verse that's in between the first batch and the second batch. In verse 10 of Deuteronomy 1, you can already tell it from the rest of the book. Moses is speaking to the people and he's recapping what they've learned, what they've seen, what they must know as they go forward. And it says in one of those first verses that we looked at, Moses explained the law. So he's not just quoting it a second time, but he's rehashing it, saying, what happened? What do we see from this? What do we know about God? What do we know about ourselves? So he's explaining it. Deuteronomy means second law. As he's saying that, In verse 10 of Deuteronomy, he looks around and he says, Look at you. Look at you. You are like the stars in the sky. Now, that is a really loaded phrase that Moses did not make up. Where did he get that? He got that from the book of Genesis. And this is one of the great stories from the beginning of God's people. God comes to a man named Abram, who's married to a woman named Sarah. And he says to him, for no reason, except ones that lie within God himself, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And your offspring, the, the two images he keeps using are, they're going to be like the sand on the, on the seashore, innumerable. And they're going to be like the stars in the sky. He makes that promise to them. And there's this long stretch where the promise is there, and they don't have any children yet, and they're becoming discouraged. In fact, they kind of want to like... Make something happen, like maybe I'm supposed to impregnate this slave woman of mine, and that's how God accomplishes His promises. God says, No, no, no. It will be through your wife, who so far is infertile. And at one point in Genesis 15, God says to Abram, Look, walk outside and look in the sky. Is it was at nighttime? And in a, in a picture, a pre pollution, pre industrialized world. Pre-electric light, pre-street light, night sky. I mean, they're pretty great now if you can get out in the country, but they must have been unbelievable. He looks up. He says, do you see the stars? That's what, that's what your lineage is going to be like. Now, connect the dots from that. That's a promise. Even before it happens, that's the promise. Connect the dots to that, to Moses. He's out in the wilderness, and there are just these millions of people. He says, look at you. You have become like the stars in the sky. And what do every one of those people have in common? All kinds of different people. They are all literally direct descendants of this couple named Abraham and Sarah. They are all direct descendants of an elderly couple who had been infertile until God's promise burst in and happened. And this is the result of it. And there just continue to be more and more and more. It, it must have been the most visually compelling evidence. When God gives you a promise, even though it may sound like crazy talk, when the promise comes, infertile woman, elderly couple, you're going to have just a, a, a beach full of descendants. He can do it. Proof. What's the other proof? The little one, look, in verse, um, look in verse 31 says, in the wilderness, where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Now, now, what's important about that? The people in the book of Deuteronomy are not the people who came out of Egypt, except for two guys, Joshua and Caleb. When the people came out of slavery in Egypt... Almost immediately, they start complaining. Almost immediately, they start murmuring and doubting God. And finally, God says this. One of the things that you've complained about, that you thought that I didn't hear and I did hear, is that you complain that, you know what? God's brought us out here in the wilderness and it's going to kill our kids. So just so you'll know that I keep my promises, all of you will die before the Jordan River is crossed. And the children that you thought would die, they will walk across the Jordan into the promised land. And except for Joshua, this guy named Caleb, those are the people that Moses is looking at. He says, think about it. You are in the worst environment for children. I mean, I wouldn't want to bring young children out in the wilderness if I had all kinds of like cool camping equipment and water filtration systems and a satellite phone and everything. They don't have any of that. There is no grocery store. There are no automobiles. There are no Jeeps. There is no internet. And God carries them like a child. Uh, This this weird passage that we looked at right before Christmas from the book of Numbers, it said that, that's the book before Deuteronomy, that this enemy of Israel saw them coming, and he knew that I think they're supposed to wipe us out, so we better do something proactively. And he hires this man to put a curse on Israel. And so this guy, like a professional cursor, he, he, he shows up, and he's you know kind of a cursed, hired gun. And he's about to just launch into it, and because God rules even over the words of someone who's been hired to curse you, when he starts talking about Israel... He just compliments it, extols how great Israel is, and how awesome it is how God takes care of them, and how all their enemies will be defeated. And the guy's off to the side going, Okay, this is almost the opposite of what I hired you to do. And it happens three times. Why? Because you do not mess with God's son. He is carrying this child of his through the wilderness. Do not mess with his child. And Moses looks around and says, look look at you. There's no shoe stores, there's no sandal stores, there's no clothes stores. Look how He's cared for you in the wilderness. Even though your parents died, He's been your parent. So, that's incredible proof. So what's the promise? If I've got that, the promises should be a slam dunk. What are those? Verse 8. God says, see, I've set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore. There's the promise to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. And there's a command, go in and take it. But the reason you can do the command is because of the promise. I promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their offspring, that's you guys, that this will be your land. So go in and take it. What other promises do you have? Verse 29 and 30. Do not be in dread or afraid of them. See, they had sent an advanced scout party to go check out their land. And they saw some huge people there. One group of people that they saw is a people group. We don't know a lot about them. But they show up in the Old Testament called the Anakim or the Anakites. Uh, They were really big people and very intimidating And so when these scouts bring back this report, they say, the land is great, but you got some really scary people there. Big cities, big people. Verses 29 and 30. What does Moses say? Do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will Himself fight for you, just as He did for you in Egypt before your eyes. So, if God can come to an elderly couple who can't have children and say, I'm going to blow your minds with how many children you are, and you're one of those great-great-great-great-grandchildren, and you're surrounded by all the the other great-great-great-great-grandchildren, and there's millions of them, and He's cared for you in the wilderness. You've had water in the wilderness. You've had food in the wilderness. Your clothing has lasted in the wilderness. Surely, when He promises you, I'm going to be with you, it's going to happen. You know it's going to happen, right? That when God's given you that kind of proof, of course, you act on it, correct? Correct. How did God's people respond? Verse 28. What's the opposite of living by faith? It's living by sight. Verse 28. Where are we going up? This is the people. Our brothers have made our hearts melt. The brothers are the scouts. Saying the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. When you don't live by sight... Or when you live by sight, you're not living by what? By faith. Look in verse 32. In spite of this word, I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to fight for you. In spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God. Now, at this point, what you might ask is, but they got better. Right? Like, their learning curve was steep. This was just kind of maybe a stumbling in the front end. And they got, they got better toward the end, right? This is in italics under the main text. This is from almost the end of the book of Deuteronomy. It's shortly before Moses dies. And he says this, same group of people. I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord, how much more so after my death. Do you understand what Moses is saying? If, I mean, kind of the country way of putting it would be, you know, if you play the fool like this, if you act the fool like this while I'm alive, if you will act the fool like this when the man that God raised up to take you from Mount Sinai to almost the promised land over 40 years and all the crud that we've been through and all the miracles that we've seen from God's hand... And I'm the front man through whom God speaks. And you know He speaks through me. And you know I didn't choose me, He chose me. If you will act this way while I'm alive, who knows what's ahead? And that is the rest of the Bible. In the book of Joshua, maybe the high water mark. They start going in, they cross the river, they start taking over areas. You know, if all you have is the book of Joshua, you might think, I think we're learning. I think we're getting there. I think we're doing what we ought to do. And then by the book of Judges, it compl- the wheels come off. The wheels come off so that Israel is now practicing the very, the very practices of the nations that they displaced. And God said, I'm displacing those nations because of their evil, not because you're so good. By the book of Judges, they're doing those things. By the time of the kings, it says that now Israel is surpassing those nations in its evil. Now, let's stop for a second. Have you ever thought or said to yourself, you know, I think if I, had, if I could have seen those miracles in the Old Testament, I think I would believe more. Have you ever thought that? Like, I have to live by faith, not by sight, and I know I need to do that. But you know, I think that if I could have seen a pillar of fire, that would be compelling. I think that if I was in the wilderness and there's no shade, but I get shade because God manifests Himself as a pillar of cloud, so I have shade in the day, and then at night when the temperature plummets, I have warmth because He's a pillar of fire, so it's both visually awesome sensory awesome, but it's also meeting our needs and it's His protective care. I think if I saw that, I just think I'd believe more. I think if I saw bread drop out of heaven, I think I'd believe more. Do you think that? Because if you do, look at the end of the passage. Verse 32, In spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents in fire by night and in the cloud by day to show you by what way you should go. The people who rebelled were the people who saw it and they experienced it. And at the end of it, where they were left was, you know he hates us. He brought us out here to kill us. Now, he might use some other group of people like the Amorites, but the reason that he delivered us from Egypt and took us out here is to kill us. Now, I don't want to say that God feels about things the way we feel, but think about, if you're a parent, how you have felt if a child ever said to you, you don't love me, or you hate me. You probably want to say, well, you know, you have seen through our plot. You know, the last 15 years or so was just a ruse to throw you off. But now, you have uncovered our master plan that we actually despise you and are working for your demise secretly day by day. It's just just insane. Even though to the child at that moment, it feels completely true and real. You know, Is it true when they say, it's because God hates us that He brought us out here? Is it true that God... No, it is the opposite. He loves them, but it feels to them. And what they feel for them is true. And here's what I want you to think about for us to identify with them. Especially if you have thought, man, I think if I'd seen the Red Sea part, I'd be a better person. Um... I dare say that these Israelites, if they found out that Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, became a man, and He was the Lamb that was slain, and that we knew about that, they would envy us. That you know, you, think about this. Think about at Christmas when we sing "O Come, O Come, Emmanuel." One of the lesser-known stanzas. Let me see if I can do this from memory. I won't sing it. O come, O come, great Lord of might, who in ancient times uh, gave the law on uh, Sinai's height, who gave the law in, in a cloud and majesty and awe. And what it's saying is this. we. It's a cry for Emmanuel to be the God who was on Mount Sinai, to come to us. That God who brought cloud and majesty and awe to come to us and be God with us. And we now know that that actually happened. I think an Israelite would look at us and go, You know that? And you rebel? When they rebel, when people like us rebel even after we were given what we were given, what do we still have? Look at the other text in italics. This is one of several passages like this in Deuteronomy. This is God speaking to the same people that He keeps saying, you're stiff-necked, you're stubborn, you do what you want. You won't believe what I say to you. And then here's, what it, here's how... God describes who they are. He says, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. Yeah, there's nothing more wonderful as a treasure than people who don't get it. Isn't that just, just, doesn't that just make you want to spend time with your treasure? Having a treasure that rejects you? Isn't it wonderful to have a treasure that will not believe you when you've given every compelling reason to be believed? But He will not stop saying, I treasure you. He will not stop saying, I am your God, even though they are an embarrassment to be identified with. He will not stop saying, you are my people, even though they continue to be an embarrassment. He will not stop saying that you are my people. I am your God. Your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. And do you understand what the text just said? The Lord loves you. Why did the Lord love you? Love you. Because He loves you. Yes, but why did the Lord love you? Because He loves you. It's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, I said this before the worship, and I want to say it again. I think, if not for all of us, some of us may be thinking right now, but if you tell people who should obey God, who claim to be identified with Him, if you tell them that even when you rebel and you disobey, He loves you, then they won't obey. It's like you're giving them carte blanche to rebel. Don't tell them that. I think, and we we may never say this, I think if they kind of deep down feel like, I'm not sure God loves me, then they'll make the changes they need to make. Then they'll ratchet up. Go back to the passage. Verse 26, Yet you would not go up, but, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God, and you murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hated us. Their disobedience is not driven by a compelling sense of God's love. Their disobedience is driven by a compelling sense that God does not love them when, in fact, He does. That is explicit in the text. If there's any takeaway I would want for us this morning, it's this. God's love for His people is not dependent on our ability to appreciate it. God's love for His people is not dependent on our ability to feel it. God's love for His people is not dependent on our ability to rightly respond to it. I am a preacher of the gospel because the Word of God is the book of the gospel. And the good news is not that you, if you're disciplined, can be committed to God. The gospel is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That while we were yet sinners and while we are sinners, God is committed to to us, that is the good news. If that is not real, it will become a fuel for disobedience, as counterintuitive as that is. that If we are not convinced of that, that fuels disobedience. We will be most obedient when we don't just intellectually assent, but we really in our bones, are convinced that when I break His commands, which I do minute by minute, unless, by the way, any of us happen to our feet hit the floor this morning and we loved God with all our heart and all our soul and all our strength, otherwise, already a violation. Even as I do that minute by minute, He loves me. And I want to end by sharing something with you. I know I've told several of you this story before, but it just it drives it home to me so much that I'll share it again. Um, a minister I know was working with a college student in Nashville. This college student was a new Christian. He was in fraternity. He had been asked uh, by this guy that was mentoring him, this minister. You need to share the gospel with the guys in your fraternity. It's a built-in mission field. You're going to spend time with them anyway. Because this guy was a southerner, and uh, because this guy didn't like awkwardness, and because it just kind of felt kind of weird and awkward, he wouldn't do it. Even though he would agree that I need to do that. And wisely, when he was honest with his mentor about that, this older Christian man said, Well, you know what? At the end of the day... Uh, Christ loves you, whether you tell other people about him or not. And the next thing I heard was this guy was telling everybody in his fraternity about, about Jesus. And the next time he got together with him, he said, I, I, We had this big talk about how you were scared to do that. And I, I've heard, I've already, I heard that you're telling people in your fraternity about Jesus. I thought you were nervous about doing that. And he said, Yeah, but I started thinking about what you said that he loves me even if I'm scared to tell them, and I thought that was awesome, so I started telling them. I told them that. that, Again, I know some of you have heard me tell that story, but do you understand how that is an encapsulation of, it's when, not just I was convinced of duty, it's when I was convinced that He loves me, that He's committed to me, Now I want to end by saying this, this is not a commitment of love. He loves all His creation, but this kind of love, this tenacious commitment for His people is not something that we just have by showing up as humans. It's for His people. And you may be here this morning and say, I I like what I'm hearing, I don't know if I'm one of His people. What I want to do is go back to so so what's the answer going to be you or him And the answer is going to have to be him and what I would exhort you to do is to cry out to him speaking very honestly but very reverently he's God and say I I don't know if I am your people or not I know you made me I know I need you I don't know if I'm your people or not I need mercy. He loves that kind of prayer. He loves when sinners humble themselves and are honest in that way. And here's what you can know. If He brings you to Himself, which I believe He would if you prayed that. If He brings you to Himself, here's what you know. Is that Christ's commitment to me is why I will cross over the Jordan River one day. My commitments will be up and down, but He was committed to me and finished the work, and I will go over. And on this side and on that side, He loves me. Do you believe God loves you? He really loves you. There's nothing that we need more. Amen. Let's pray. Father, It may be, this morning, that um, a troubled marriage, or a terrible marriage, or uh, a monetary setback, or lack of employment, or depression, or lack of friends, Makes life feel like you do not care. And it would take your powerful hand to break through those things that are so close and they're so visible, they are felt, they're real. It would take you working to burst through that and to convince us that if the cross is true, then there's no good thing you'll withhold. If the cross is true, you love sinners. Please make that burst through. Please get that in our very heart of hearts. Use even this morning, not only the word, but the table to do that in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.